time for fighting for the faith. I got the FJ back. Oh, 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 man. I posted pictures of what it would look like ahead of time, but the pictures do not do it justice. Pirate Christian Radio now officially has the Pirate Christian Radio FJ Cruiser with insanity design. <laughs> Let's just say that uh, I was driving down the uh, 405, actually up the 5 freeway this morning to uh, the El Toro exit. That's the exit that, uh, sh- uh, if you want to get to Saddleback Church, take the 5 up to uh, El Toro. Got off at the same exit as Saddleback Church. <clears throat> and uh, aside from the fact that uh, there was a lot of people staring at the FJ Cruiser with the insanity design that we have on there, uh, a guy, I, I was waiting at the red light to uh, turn left on El Toro when I got off the freeway, and some guy rolls down his window and he wants to take me on. <laughs> I kid you not. He's all, you're judgmental. What is this all about? I'm all, well, this is, uh, you know, this advertising pirate Christian radio. We're a radio station that uh, is not going to give you pop psychology and self-help and purpose-drivenism. We're going to give you Christ and him crucified for your sins. I said, your sins and mine, sir. And he said, <laughs> he got all mad at me. Well, when you were pointing your finger at me, there were there were four fingers pointing at you. you know, or three pointed at He was really upset. <laughs> and I said, sir. I said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, you are a wicked sinner, and you need uh, you need Christ's forgiveness. I have good news. Christ has died for your sins. He didn't want to have anything to do with that. <laughs> he just... <clears throat> so, <clears throat> the uh, Pirate Christian Radio, FJ Cruiser, is now turning heads and uh, apparently upsetting certain people. And I'm not so upset about upsetting people. By the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing to do. Oh, I'm not repenting from that one. No way. <laughs> oh, man. I got to tell you, guys, the guy who did the uh, the FJ, his his name is James, and he's got a website. If you, if you want, are considering having your car, truck, or business vehicle wrapped, you know, so that you can advertise your company, you need to uh, look up this guy's website, even if you're not in California. Have him do the design work. He is outrageously talented in what he does. Uh, James from blinginwraps.com. Blingin. B-L-I-N-G. Blingin. I'll have to, I'll put a link up to it at fightingforthefaith.com. I want to promote this guy. He did such a fantastic job. Just a killer design, professional execution on getting the truck wrapped. And it's flawless. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So if if even if you if you don't live in Southern California, you need to have James do the design work for your uh, your uh, wrap for your car. Absolutely want to kick some business uh, James's way. So <clears throat> had to give you the update. The FJ looks outrageous. I couldn't be more thrilled. So today we're going to uh, we've got some good stuff lined up today. We're going to go through uh, some email. We're going to announce the winner of the Name the Kayak contest. Today is the final, as of broadcasting time today, it was the last time that you could officially put in your um, 
what you, your submission for the name the kayak contest. We've got some good ones. I've got to tell you, narrowing it down to one winner was really, really hard. In fact, we were swamped with uh, last-minute entries. <laughs> the, I mean, the emails coming in were outrageous, and so we. Uh, well, we'll go through uh, the ones that made the cut, you know, for, for to be considered. What's really funny is I actually had a couple of people who, I mean, they did the spray and pray approach. I mean, they just started throwing names at, you know, I got a list of five names from one guy. <laughs> oh, man. I'm just glad that I, I would like to thank you all who participated that we didn't have anyone who submitted the name uh, the Titanic. <laughs> Thank you very much for not using that name. It would have made me depressed. <laughs> oh man! All right, let's let's get to listener email. We got got some good emails, some good feedback from uh, yesterday's program, and uh, want to share them with you. Oh, what did I do with those? Well, I can always go on. <sighs> Rosebro, you're getting old. I, I, by the way, folks, in case you haven't figured it out, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm getting old. <laughs> All right. Uh, this, this is from Robert. Robert writes, he says, Chris, I'm listening right now to your broadcast from yesterday, which was September 16th. That was our uh, Pastrix Paula White Day of Atonement, um, the seven blessings of the Day of Atonement show. And, oh, boy, was that a fun show. He writes, uh, I'm listening right now to your broadcast, and one comment that came to mind is this. How much do you want to bet that if anyone actually mentions the requirements to enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to Pastrix Paula White, she'll come up with an, uh, an offer to supply authentic holy garments of the high priest? In fact, uh, I think that was probably another good way for her to bring in the bucks. You know, I agree with you, Robert. In fact, um, I'm I'm waiting for Pastrix Paula White to really formally announce the Paula White Paula White designer ephod series and you can you you can wear them as pajamas to bed you know nothing like dressing like a high priest when you're ready to go to bed because those ephods really look comfy especially if you make them in flannel you know just (laughs) those holy undergarments and and they can even market them to mormons you know because the mormons have the holy underwear that they do too (laughs) i'm really really bad um (laughs) nathan actually Nathan from Little Rock, Arkansas, emailed me a link to a uh, website called the Book of Blessings. It's not in the Bible, but there is a Book of Blessings, and so I've got a link here. And you can download the whole book online in PDF format. All you have to do is give them your email address. I, man. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Uh, no, that's, that's, a, that's an entry. Let's see here. Oh, this was a great one. Roxy. Roxy writes, the great, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, folks, I'm impressed with, you know, I've got a very, very smart, astute, and a little snarky audience. Yeah. So, <laughs> you guys are just as snarky as I am. I'm setting a bad example. Anyway, Roxy writes, she, she has some suggestions for Paula White for trinkets that she can sell for big bucks on her TV show. Um, these are some pretty bizarre ideas, but, you know, I think there's some merit to them. I, you know, Roxy, you, you may have missed your calling. You need to work for the televangelist. She says, uh, number one, gold-plated ravens to put on your windowsills. 
gold-plated ravens so that God will send ra- uh, real ravens to bring you food when the economy collapses. And then you, you can even have inscribed on them the proof text, 1 Kings 17, chapter 4. Uh, chapter 17, verse 4, yeah. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 4. That's where Elijah was, you know, he fled after he, uh, God told him to tell, tell Ahab and Jezebel that it's not going to rain until Elijah says so. And then Elijah has to split town and he's living in a ravine, you know, it, and, uh, and God sends ravens to feed him. You know, this is terrible. If, if I were Elijah and I was getting fed every day by ravens, the one thing I would really be worried about is making sure that I cooked whatever the ravens brought because do those things have uh, sanitary mouths or beaks? Just just wondering. Um, yeah, by the way, uh, today, we're in fact, John is working on it right now. He's just about put it, the finishing touches on it. We're going to be uh, placing that PDF online, and uh, we would really love to solicit your help in uh to to send this uh pdf to download it print it out it, it basically it's a pdf that has one ram two goats and a bull on it as well as a little bit of loving text that we uh <clears throat> some verbiage that we did you know that put on there and uh it, and the idea is to to print these out and send one to Pastrix Paula White. We'll uh, we'll include the uh, the physical address that you can send this to. But the nice thing is, is that this is really kid friendly, John. What you've done here, the, it, those of you with small kids, you might want to print this out and let your kids color it first. You know, make sure they stay in the lines as best as they can. But uh, uh, the, it's basically you print it out. It's got a it's got a graphical depiction of a ram, two male goats, and a bull that you could then print out for your Day of Atonement offering, you know. And uh, the text at the bottom is a little snarky, isn't it? (laughs) There's that word. I like that word snarky, by the way. It's, yeah, never mind. All right, without any further ado. By the way, second half of the program, I'm going to be playing for you uh, an interview I did earlier with with, uh, uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. Great, great interview that uh, he he was he was very generous and gracious to uh, to allow me to interview him. And we we're talking about the scholarship of uh, Elaine Pagels, the uh, the one who is uh, out there literally running around the landscape, telling us that the Gospel of Thomas should be considered canonical, and that the Gospel of John, well, that's just not. And so uh, we talked about uh, we talked about the uh, evidence to support the apostolic origin of the uh, four Gospels, good stuff, and even talked a little bit about what is good scholarship and what is bad scholarship. And, uh, of course, you know, I did this just because I'm a mean and unloving person and I wanted to twist the knife just one more time for the Reverend Chuck Curry. See, that's the only reason I did it. That's actually not true, but... All right. I've now... (laughs) Lots of entries last night. Lots of entries. So, um, here we go, folks. This is it. The winner of the uh, Name the Red Kayak contest. I'm going to read to you the final entries, and then I'll announce the winner here. So, <laughs> this is Warren. Warren, is the uh, he, he did the oatmeal on the wall approach, you know, the spray and pray. <laughs> 
uh, what's funny is is that I'm thinking, am I Christopher Columbus? You know, because his his <laughs> his suggestions are, how about the Santa Maria or the Pinta, the, the Santa Clara? I mean, the Red Storm or Sunseed. Now, Sunseed, that's a funny one because uh, that's the name of that band that uh, that did the Jesus is a friend of mine. <laughs> oh man, oh. Warren, I got to give you credit for the uh, the spray and pray approach. That was pretty good. Although I, nah, well, I won't announce the winner here. Here, uh, uh, the Reverend Jared uh, uh, Tucker from Trinity Lutheran in Gillette, Wyoming. Gillette, Wyoming. Is that where they uh, make the shaving cream? I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm pulling. I'm expressing my ignorance here in front of everybody. Okay, he he's uh, got one. It's it's the bounty of grace. Bounty o grace. He, he has that o thing going on there. He says it's very piratey. All right, here we got Jonah's boat from uh, Rick in Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, Larry from uh, Naperville, Illinois, says you ready for this? The red kayak. I like that. Yeah, I know. There's something catchy about that one. The red kayak. Um, and then Gary writes, He's he has a couple of entries, and I'll, I'll let him submit them all. Uh, he, he he He's going, you know, you've heard of the red letter Christians. He thinks I should name my boat the red kayak Christian. He also suggests the, the paddle-driven boat, which is very clever. Uh, Arc 2. Not sure if I like that one. Uh, <laughs> this one's hilarious. Um, uh, going back to our disco days, we can name the kayak the Electric Paddaloo. I need some bell bottoms for that one. And uh, and then uh, Roxy uh, from uh, Rhinebeck, New York. She's got <laughs> a couple of really good suggestions. She knows my wife is named Barb, so she uh, writes uh, Chris Barb's or the Chris Barb. And there's a pun intended, or the lawless pirate. The lawless pirate. All right, those are the ones that made it through the filter for today. And those that that's it. There's no more submissions allowed. If you uh, send them along, you know, send along any more entries, they will not be considered. Although I might get a good kick out of it. So it's time to announce who the winner is now. Up until today, the close. The, the ones that were, you know, if I had to pick yesterday, um, the the one that was really close to winning was the uh, your best kayak now. Now, <laughs> that one has that one just has the funny factor written all over it. But um, my my wife was she's just not fond of that one. She she every time seriously every single time I'd say, honey, you know. I'm kind of leaning towards that best kayak now. She go, no, 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 no. And so you got to understand that that uh, part of the part of my job in life is to keep my wife happy. So you know, it, I love her, and I don't want her to you know to experience depression or be upset. I don't want. I, I don't. You know, it would be terrible because she has to help me. You know, she helps me many times putting the kayak on the roof of the FJ. And so I think if I named it your best kayak now, she might just protest and not help me lift it up on the top of the FJ anymore. So we had to we had to X that one out. So I apologize, but uh, your best kayak now will not be the winner. Now, which kind of leaves uh, a couple of them that were really, really, really close. The red kayak, definitely um, a 
<laughs> it's simple and it's funny. Okay. Um, Bounty of Grace, definitely a strong contender. For the funny factor, again, another strong uh, contender is uh, Gary's submission, uh, the paddle-driven boat. So, we narrowed it down to these three. So, how do do they do these things? So, here's the deal. The the third runner-up, the one that didn't win but came in third place, and I'm I'm actually going to send something out to each of the three top winners. So, uh, the the third runner-up, is the red kayak came in third place? I know, I know. John's shaking his head. The uh, coming in second, and I mean a close second, is the bounty of grace, bounty o grace from uh, the Reverend Jared Tucker. The winner of the name the kayak contest is uh-huh. is, is, is drum roll please is Gary Veldhoff's uh, submission, the paddle driven boat. John just threw confetti. <laughs> Congratulations, Gary. I, I'll send you an email. Send me your address, and I will, uh, as soon as we get the, uh, the the hats and the T-shirts in stock, then we will send that out to you. And, and then uh, the Reverend Jerry, uh, uh, Jared Tucker and uh, Larry from Naperville, Illinois, send me your addresses also, and we'll send you out some Pirate Christian Radio gear. Thank you all for participating in our silly, ridiculous contest. Maybe if you drive your, your cruiser to Saddleback, they won't. Right. Right. They yeah. If I put the kayak on top, they won't vandalize it because it is a paddle-driven boat. Oh, love the cleverness. Thank you guys. Great job. Great job. All right. What we're gonna do for the the remainder of this segment is uh, last week I kind of opened up the door. I've been uh, I've read the book the the shack. And and I've read a lot of the reviews out there. I've been listening to uh, everything I can get my hands on. Uh, that the, the William uh, William P. Young has uh, done as far as interviews and things like that. And what's funny is I, I, what I want to do, rather than do it all in one setting, I, I kind of want to do some reflections on this and walk you through my thoughts on the book. And um, first of all, I, I'll, I'll say this up front. It's a good read. It's a really, really good read. And um, it's particularly appealing to me as a theologian because it, it does a lot of theologizing. And what I, I, I'll get, I got to give credit to uh, William P. Young. Uh, and the reason I have to give him credit is because he's written a book that if he had just written a theological uh, treatise or a bunch of theological uh, thought pieces or reflections on theology, um, he wouldn't have gotten quite the response that he did. In fact, I, d- I doubt very few people would have read it. You know, theology for most people is the the equivalent of going to the beach and trying to eat sand. Um, you know, it's, it, even if you put mustard and ketchup on it, it's still not that tasty or that great of an experience. So w- what William Young did in the book The Shack is he took some some he he basically wrapped his theological theologizing, and I'm going to say that word, theologizing, he wrapped it in a very emotionally compelling and engaging story. And as a result of it, it engages you on two levels. First of all, it, it just sucks you in the story. Um, you know, you, you can't help but absolutely feel like you're engaged in it on a very deep level because the story is so sad, and, and it's one in which we can all relate to. Um, the, the basic premise of the story 
is that uh, the main character, his name is Mackenzie, and Mackenzie's daughter, Missy, um, you know, I'm sorry if I'm ruining this for some of you, but she was murdered by a serial killer. You know, she was like the the, the fifth little girl murdered by a serial killer. And um, as a result of, you know, the, it happened on a family vacation. She was abducted and and they weren't even able to recover her body. It was that, you know, that, that bad. And they, you know, so they, and so what happens is, is that that particular event sends Mackenzie into what he refers to as the deep sadness, you know, the great sadness in his life. You know, it's it, the years afterwards that ensue are really, really difficult and tough for him to get through. And it rocks the foundation of his faith in, in, as a Christian. And, and so what happens is, is that uh, in the course of him going through this great sadness, um, by the way, his daughter was murdered in the shack. That's where, you know, the, the shack is why it's so important to the story. He receives a letter from the Holy Trinity inviting him to the shack to have a face-to-face conversation. And so, um, as crazy as it sounds, he heads off to the place where his daughter was murdered, and lo and behold, he actually has a, a, a weekend, if you would, with the Trinity. And, um, and in the course of that weekend, what happens is the experience of the Trinity, you know, w- with his time with the Trinity... That part of the book is really a lot of dialogue going back and forth. And this is where William Young does a lot of theologizing. And I keep, I'm going to keep saying it like that. And the reason I'm going to keep saying it like that is because I think the book itself seeks to answer questions that the scripture doesn't answer. And um, when I got my undergraduate degree, Rosenblatt would uh, you know, go on and on about things like this. That when you get into this, this type of speculation... You've uh, you, you've left the reservation as far as the scriptures are concerned, and you're now into the realm of philosophy. And so, even though it's supposed to be a Christian book, it's really in a it, the right way to describe it would actually be a Christian philosophy book wrapped in a narrative. And what he's doing is he's wrestling with really, really tough, difficult, and real—I mean, real and authentic—problems that um, that each that kind of impacts and touches each of us, and that we can all somehow relate to. That's why the book has had such a broad appeal, is because many of—I think so many people in reading the book can see themselves in the Mackenzie role, even though they haven't had a daughter murdered. They still they wrestle with things questions about their faith much the same way that Mackenzie is wrestling with these with these problems and really would like the ability to ask God these questions and so it, what it does is it, it 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 in a really sly kind of way gives you the ability to to imagine what the answers would be or pretend for a minute that you're you have a face to face meeting with God the Trinity and you can ask these really really tough questions and get answers to it my problem overall though with the book is that the answers given really are it really fall into the realm of philosophy some of them i think have merit some of the some of the answers to the tough questions that are discussed in the book um i don't think have merit some of them are dangerous and some border on the heretical it's a real mixed bag that you get with uh, what's going on here but I got to come back to the issue of sola scriptura. 
All right. One of the things I I teach in my Sunday school class, and I'll hammer this point home all the time, where Scripture speaks, we must boldly and certainly assert that that's what the Scripture teaches. Where the Scripture is silent, we must remain silent. And where William Young spends much of his time is in the why and the motivation for the things that God does. And that's where it that's where I think it actually gets dangerous. Um, even though it just it's it's a novel and it's theologizing and it's philosophizing, in a way it it even goes beyond that. It's psychologizing. It's trying to get into the mind of God and, and give us answers as to why we're suffering, why we go through what we go through. And I I hate to say this but speaking just really bluntly and boldly here, Scripture doesn't tell us why. God doesn't give us satisfactory answers on this. And so William Young, in, setting it, in putting the things that he did into this book, is in a way trying to provide some kind of a framework for understanding God's motives for the things that he does. But Scripture doesn't provide them. Um, so I'm not exactly thrilled with Mackenzie or <clears throat> William Young supplying the answers so um real quick um what i find going on here is it's a very subtle attack and and i'll say it that way it's a subtle attack against the doctrine of sola scriptura it's almost a, a a neo pentecostalism that's being that's being expressed here but it's not it's not the kind of pentecostalism that leads to speaking in tongues and things like that it's more of of the direct information from god kind of stuff and so when i read books like this one of the things i look for is what is the author putting down or and what is the author exalting what is the author um attacking and what is the author uh instead promoting and so I'm going to read a, you know, this today's not going to be the only day I do this. So I'm going to be, I'm going to cut this up into segments. Today will be the first day I, I deal with it. But I just wanted to kind of get, get you the idea what's going on here. Is this is the very subtle attack against sola scriptura that's happening in the shack? Okay. Now talking about um, uh, how the tragedy, you know, the murder of his daughter affected Mackenzie. Is re- he's referred to as Mac in the book. On page 65 of the book, we read this. It says, The tragedy had also increased the riff in Mac's own relationship with God. But he ignored this growing sense of separation. Instead, he tried to embrace a stoic, unfeeling faith, even though Mac found some comfort and peace in that. It didn't stop the nightmares where his feet were stuck in the mud with his soundless screams, uh, could not save his precious Missy. The bad dreams were becoming less frequent, and the and the laughter and moments of joy were slowly returning, but he felt guilty about these. So when Mac received the note from Papa, Papa is the name of God the Father um, in the book The Shack, and we'll talk about this in, in future installments about The Shack. So when Mac received the note from Papa telling him to meet him back at The Shack, it was no small event, Does God even write notes? And why the shack, the icon of his deepest pain? Certainly God would have better places to meet with him. A dark thought even crossed his mind that the killer could be taunting him or luring him away to leave the rest of his family unprotected. Maybe it was all just a cruel hoax. But then 
Why was it signed Papa? Try as he might, Mac could not escape the desperate possibility that the note just might be from God. After all, even if the thought of God passing notes did not fit well with his theological training. In seminary, he'd been taught that God had completely stopped any overt communication with the moderns, preferring to have uh, to have them only listen to and follow sacred scripture, properly interpreted, of course. God's voice had been reduced to paper, and even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. It seemed that direct communication was, with God was something exclusively for the ancients and the uncivilized, while educated Westerners' access to God was mediated and controlled by the intelligentsia. Nobody wanted God in a box, they just wanted him in a book, especially an expensive one bound in leather gilt edges, or was it gilt edges? Interesting. That that's the kind of breadcrumb that I look for when I do when I read a book like this and I want to give a critique. What are the, what is he exalting and what is he condemning? And this is a very subtle attack against sola scriptura. It's a very subtle attack. Now, I'll be the first person to tell you that God is not limited in his communication to only the Bible. Who am I to put a limit on God and say that God can't speak to people? I won't do that because the one thing I know about the God of the universe from Scripture is, is that uh, he has a mind of his own and he does things his way. He can speak to whomever he chooses to speak to. And so that's not really the issue. The question is, um, can we trust what we have and how are we as Christians to look at the Word of God? And I see uh, William Young's little thought there here opening up the idea that uh, somehow trusting in God alone or sola scriptura is the equivalent of putting God in a box or a book. But see, there's the thing. We as Christians know that God has definitively spoken in his word. I can't tell you with certainty. I might in the middle of the night have a vision. You might wake up in the middle of the night having had a very vivid dream or a vision and believe that God was communicating to you. But the question is, um, how do you know God is the one who's communicating to you? And it wasn't just some piece of undigested meat or you were having low blood sugar because you're hypoglycemic. And then if you had, uh, if you took an orange, it would go away. You see, visions and dreams are flighty little things. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that people who say that God is speaking to them or through them or whatever, um, boy, it seems almost without exception that that person is also teaching false doctrine. And so I'm very leery, very cautious, very, very um, sober when it comes to someone saying, God told me or God spoke to me. Yeah, God may have, but the thing is, is that we know for a fact that he has spoken in his word. I'd like to read to you a a simple passage. This is from Hebrews chapter 1. And here's what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the entire world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Interesting, right off the bat, Hebrews, the, the epistle to the Hebrews, opens with that in long ago and in many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. By the way, if you were really to add up the total number of people that God spoke to in the Old Testament, as compared to how many people have lived, it's a very small number. It's a very rare event that God speaks to somebody directly. Very rare. Um, but it says, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed as the heir of all things. So we can know that God has speak, spoken definitively through the words of his Son. And where do we find the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? We find them in the Gospels. We find them in the pages of Scripture. We shouldn't look at Scripture as some kind of a limiting thing, as somehow we're putting God into a box or into a book, or that somehow we're worshiping a book. No, not at all. Instead, what we find in the pages of Scripture are the very words of the Son of God, the one whom he has definitively spoken, who is God in human flesh. He is the ultimate revelation of God. The ultimate, the penultimate, the most important. And so when we look at Scripture, we can know that there God has definitively spoken. You may not know that God has spoken to you definitively in your liver shivers and in your dreams or in your visions or in your, think, in your psyche. That might, might all be self-deception. But we know for a fact that God has spoken in his Son. So where do we go to find the voice of God first and foremost? His word. In fact, his word alone gives us true and absolutely without error information about God, who he is, his attributes, what he's done, what little we know about why he's done what he's done. It is scripture that we should continue to put our trust in as far as giving us a complete message. And it is through the word of God that God sanctifies us and molds us into his image. And so we need to have a high view of scripture, not a low view of scripture. And one of my main concerns starting off in, into my exploration of the teachings and the errors and the, basically the, uh, the dangers of the book, The Shack, is that it has the subtle attack against sola scriptura and puts down this idea that that we've that God has spoken to us definitively through the Bible and instead tries to seek a direct experience with the almighty God hasn't promised to give us a direct experience with him not this side of the resurrection but he has spoken definitively in his word and we must trust it and look to it alone really for what God has to say and what he's done. Anyway, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. And when we get back, we're going to uh, play my interview with Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. And uh, we're going to be talking about Elaine Pagels. And uh, have to take another swipe at her, you know, because, you know, I'm just an unloving guy is what it basically boils down to. So um, if you would like to email me, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com talk back at fightingforthefaith.com and we'll be right back
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn Radio Program including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. All right, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, finding those wild thoughts that are disobedient to Christ, shining the light of truth on them, and bringing them back into conformity with Christ. It's quite a calling, I guess. Maybe I'm making it sound more important than it is. <laughs> hey, I want to, again, promote the uh, the Wittenberg Trail website. Um, are you burnt out on legalism and tired of jumping through the hoops of performance-based, purpose-driven religious programs? Would you like to learn more about God's grace offered to Christian sinners like me and like you? If so, consider joining the online community of confessional Lutherans called the Wittenberg Trail. This is a wonderful resource for those who would like to interact with other people who are either exploring the Lutheran faith or those who've subscribed to the Lutheran confessions their whole life. The Wittenberg Trail is an online community where you can learn and ask questions. It's a place where you can safely explore the great theology and doctrines of the church body that launched the Reformation by rediscovering the centrality of Jesus Christ and the gospel of his full and complete pardon from sins apart from works. Come to the Wittenberg Trail and you can see for yourself that the Lord is good. You can find the Wittenberg Trail at wittenbergtrail.ning.com or you can find a link for the Wittenberg Trail at fightingforthefaith.com. I want to promote these guys. This is a great online resource. And for those of you who would like a safe place to explore Lutheranism and really kind of get familiar with what it is that uh, we believe, teach, and confess and uh, find the centrality of the gospel and find rest and peace for your soul and hear the good news for you as a Christian that Christ died for your sins, even the ones you committed today. Wittenberg Trail, great place for you to go. All right, I'm going to be playing for you an interview that I recorded earlier today with uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. And uh, let me formally introduce Dr. Montgomery. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Bedfordshire in England. 
He's a French advocate and a barrister at law in England and Wales, and he's a member of the Bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. He's a distinguished research professor of philosophy and Christian thought at Patrick Henry College and is the author and editor of more than 50 books, including the Tractatus Logico Theologicus. That's a good <laughs> good stuff. Without any further ado, here's my interview with uh, Dr. John Work Montgomery on Elaine Pagels and the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. I'd like to welcome uh, Pat, uh, Dr. John Work Montgomery to Fighting for the Faith here on Pirate Christian Radio. Dr. Montgomery, thanks for coming on our radio program today. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, today we're going to be talking about Elaine Pagels and her support for the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Uh, she's been recently running around the landscape promoting her book on the, on the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas called Beyond Belief. And uh, in this book and in her lectures, she is basically making the claim that the uh, Gnostic Gospel of Thomas uh, represents a, a true picture of early Christian community of, of an early Christian community's view of Jesus and his teaching, and is undermining um, any certainty that we have regarding the uh, apostolic veracity of uh, the four Gospels as we have them: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but specifically the Gospel of John. And uh, I and so I invited Dr. Montgomery to come onto the program today to really talk about um, whether or not what we have in the New Testament Gospels can be trusted. Um, if the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas represents in any way a an apostolic view or an eyewitness testimony to the teachings of Jesus, and if it can be trusted, and and then overall talk about. Um, New Testament scholarship as a whole, and what is considered good scholarship and bad scholarship, and if we can move beyond a subjective opinion of what is good, good and bad, you know, as far as this person's in my camp, so I think they're good. So, uh, Dr. Montgomery, let's uh, let's dive into our program today. So, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Is there any reason why we should believe that that is an early document that should be trusted and can give us, un, you know, that we could put into our New Testament as a fifth gospel? No, not in the slightest. Uh, the earliest copies we have of it are 3rd century. The earliest mentions of it are 3rd century. Uh, and therefore, you, you've got at least a couple of hundred years uh, between the life and times of Jesus and what this gospel is saying. So that in itself is, uh, is very, very uh, damning as far as the Gospel of Thomas is concerned. But I think... Uh, maybe to begin with, we ought to realize that uh, the picture of Jesus that you get in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John, uh, that picture is entirely contradictory to what you find in the Gnostic Gospels. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, though they might both be false, they certainly couldn't both be true. Uh, there's a very interesting passage in C.K. Barrett, uh, C.K. Barrett was one of the uh, specialists on the Gospel of John a generation ago, mm -hmm. and uh, he had this to say. He says, there is a maximum of divergence between John and the Gnostic Gospels. First, the eschatological motif which runs through the New Testament, including John, is missing in those Gospels. The sending of the Son and fulfillment of the divine purpose is an eschatological theme. Uh, so is judgment and glory. It is true that the New Testament writers, and John in particular, speak of judgment as operating and glory as manifested in the present as well as in the future, but they do so in virtue of the shift in the center of gravity brought about by the historic mission of Jesus. 
there are they are in fact compelled to speak of his mission in these terms because their primary interpretation is eschatological but the gnostic gospels view this in a very different light they diagnose the human situation which is the scene and occasion of the work of redemption in terms of ignorance rather than sin this is not merely a linguistic difference but affects radically the substance of the two works what Barrett is saying there is that you don't get a historic uh, approach to uh, the life of Christ or an emphasis on his uh, historic second coming in the Gnostic Gospels, and there isn't any serious concept of sin or redemption. They see the human problem as one of ignorance rather than sin. So uh, it, it isn't possible that the Jesus of the Gnostic Gospels and the Jesus of the New Testament could both be correct. Uh, you're going to have to choose one or the other of these. Okay, so you're operating uh, from the basic tenet that you've uh, outlined in your Tractatus that uh, A equals A, the, the, the logical uh, law of non-contradiction. So in the Gnostic Gospels, I, I, in fact, I've recently reread it. What I noticed is, is that uh, any historical reference uh, to where Jesus said any of the sayings that are listed in the uh, Gnostic Gospels is completely missing. There's, it, it, it doesn't tell me anything as far as the narrative as to where Jesus was, who he was with, or anything like that, in, in sharp contrast to the, uh, uh, the, the Gospels that we have in the New Testament where it tells us that Jesus was traveling to this town, was meeting with these people, was talking you know, to this person. All that seems to be missing in the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. Is, that, uh, is there a reason for that? Oh, yes, very definitely. Uh, the Gnostics didn't care about history. Uh, they didn't care about the body. They cared about the separable soul. Uh, and uh, it, it's been pointed out by a number of people, for example, Tom Wright, uh, that uh, this has more affinities with Eastern religions, with Buddhism and the like, than it does with uh, the uh, Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, fact of the matter is, uh, these Gnostic writers were trying to remove Jesus from uh, historic Judaism to make uh, Jesus uh, far less uh, Jewish and far less historical so that he became a mystical symbol. Uh, Tom Wright has said that uh, what they were doing is very much like what uh, Hulicker and Dodd and Jeremias did in the 20th century to try to remove the Jewish side of, of Christianity. Uh, and it makes one think of Marcion in the 2nd century, and uh, goodness, uh, in the 20th, the Deutsche Christen movement that tried to uh, take all the Jewish references out of the New Testament so that Jesus would become an Aryan. Uh, the Gnostics didn't want to make him an Aryan. What they wanted to do was to make him an abstract uh, symbol of their belief system, namely that the way to salvation is through hidden knowledge, uh, gnosis, hidden knowledge, mm -hmm. and that hidden knowledge involves separating one's soul from the interests of this world. Okay, so it's, it's, it's a denial of the physical. The yeah, it's a denial of the physical, and that means, of course, a denial of the historical. And that's why they don't care two hoots about historical references. Interesting. Okay, so you sa you've said that uh, that the Gnostics, uh, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, uh, we only have a couple of copies of it, and it's late. You said third century. Um, tell me about the historical veracity of the New Testament documents, specifically the Gospels. Um, how, you know, it, how do we, how can we trust that what we've received is apostolic and wasn't just picked for us by uh, 
Constantine in the third century, the way the Da Vinci Code tells us? Well, uh, for one thing, in the case of the Gospel of John, uh, there are fragments that go back to the very end of the first century. Uh, the John Rylands papyrus at the University of Manchester, uh, for example, is dated by everybody at the very end of the first century. That means that even the latest of the Gospels, namely the Gospel of John, is uh, very, very early. It's uh, within the time frame of the people who were alive at the time uh, that uh, Jesus' ministry took place. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in the case of uh, all four Gospels, we have external evidence of uh, apostolic authorship. Uh, John had, among other disciples, uh, two uh, gentlemen by the names of uh, Papias and Polycarp, Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, these disciples of his uh, flourished at the very beginning of the second century, but studied under him at the very end of his life at Ephesus. Uh, John died around 95. Uh, and uh, both of them tell us that John was the author of his gospel. And Papias tells us that John uh, told him that Matthew's gospel was written by Matthew Levi, the tax collector, uh, who, was a, who was an apostle. Mark's gospel was written by John Mark, who was the companion to the apostle Peter. Mm -hmm. And Luke's gospel was written by the physician Luke, who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Now, that kind of uh, external confirmation of authorship uh, simply doesn't exist for other documents of the classical world. And this is why uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, uh, principal librarian of the British Museum a generation ago and the greatest authority on New Testament textual criticism, said that the New Testament documents are the best attested, the best authenticated documents of the classical world. That means that we are dealing here with absolutely uh, solid materials concerning Jesus, written either by eyewitnesses or by close associates of eyewitnesses, and it's for those reasons that uh, those particular books were collected uh, by the early church to form the New Testament, mm -hmm. and the reason uh, <laughs> why the Gnostic Gospels weren't. Right. So basically, what you're, you're you're claiming is is that we have it's not a matter of blind faith uh, in trusting that the New Testament documents are are solid and clean. It's it's actually a matter of uh, good scholarship that uh, an attestation from eyewitnesses external to the scriptures that uh, this idea that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote these uh, Gospels and that the information they contain is eyewitness testimony is solid. It's is it bulletproof. Well, sure, it's bulletproof in terms of, of uh, textual criticism and historical research. Mm -hmm. uh, these, these areas, like all uh, scholarly areas, do not arrive to a level of 100%. Mm -hmm. But we cannot demand that. Uh, we don't demand it for any other historical uh, materials. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't insist that, uh, that uh, we're not sure whether Napoleon... Uh, won or lost at Waterloo because the evidence isn't 100%. Uh, we build up our historical knowledge just as we do our knowledge of ordinary affairs by, uh, by, uh, probably, by probability, by examining the plausibility of the evidence. And this evidence is so good, uh, as I argued in a, a debate with a philosophy professor at University of British Columbia years ago, that if you want to throw these documents out, you can, of course, do so. 
But before you throw them out, you have got to discard your entire knowledge of the classical world because none of our historical records concerning Greece or Rome or any of the uh, historians, literateur, dramatists of that time, none of them uh, has the attestation, the solidity uh, that you find with the New Testament documents. Uh, and uh, this <laughs> professor philosophy said on that occasion, all right, he said, I'll throw out my knowledge of the classical world. This was before an audience of about 2,000. Uh-huh. And the pro- uh, professor of classics jumped up and said, good Lord, not that. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, nobody, could, nobody thought that this, this professor of philosophy was being serious, and he really wasn't. Right. Uh, uh, it, nobody can do that. And therefore, uh, people have got to face the case for Jesus Christ is presented in these documents. So um, I've talked with a few people about this, and, and you know, I think that the general rub is is that uh, the New Testament documents contain uh, eyewitness testimony that also includes uh, miraculous events, uh, people, the blind being able to see, uh, lepers being healed, the dead being raised. And so they, they somehow think that the New Testament documents have to be graded differently. There has to be a different standard by which we can work with them, because if you deal with them the same way you would a history like uh, Tacitus or uh, regarding uh, Julius Caesar, it, it, they think in their mind that these things fall into two completely different categories. It sounds like you're arguing that they all belong in the same type of category. Well, sure they do. Uh, if, we, if we don't have uh, a uh, solid reason to say that miracles never happen, then we've got to check the evidence uh, that uh, once in a while they may very well happen. Otherwise, we're operating uh, blindly with a completely closed view of the universe. And uh, last we heard, under Einsteinian relativity, uh, nobody knows enough about the universe to declare that certain things can't happen. Uh, the only way to find out if things happen is to investigate them. Uh, again, some years ago, I was on a panel at the American Historical Association, and uh, J.T. McNeil, or the son of J.T. McNeil, who had just done a book entitled The Rise of the West, was on a panel with me. And uh, in his book, he doesn't do anything with the rise of Christianity. And so I said, how come? How can the West rise without any mention of the most important historical factor? Uh, and he said, ah, he said, but Christianity was supposed to have started with the resurrection of Christ, and we historians can't examine that kind of thing. And I said, really? I thought that historians were supposed to look at all testimony, not prejudge the testimony by some kind of philosophical viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, th- that's the problem. Uh, there's nobody who knows the universe well enough to exclude the miraculous. And uh, the, the case for these uh, miracles uh, obviously uh, depends upon the accuracy of the testimony. Uh, the fact that miracles don't occur every Friday night is simply an indication that they're connected with Jesus Christ. Uh, and they attest the fact that he claimed to be God Almighty. And if God Almighty appears on the scene, then it wouldn't be especially surprising that the events would be a little bit different from Friday night's events. Okay. So, you're you, as a historian and as an academic and as a scholar, you're you're making the charge that uh, when we look in the New Testament documents, even though they contain miraculous claims, and in Elaine Pagel's case with the Gospel of John, she takes particular issue with the fact 
that uh, the Jesus in the Gospel of John makes very exclusive claims about himself, saying that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that uh, he, you know, the, the Jesus in the Gospel of John is painted as as the one true God in human flesh, the God of Israel uh, in human skin, if you would, and she takes particular issue with that and claims that uh, you know that somehow that that's not an accurate picture of uh, of what the historical Jesus is all about. So, as a scholar, then um, you know, be, just because something has miraculous claims or somebody claims to be God, you don't automatically just rule that out. Well, of course not. Uh, one has to deal with data. Uh, if one wants to do good scholarship, you go to the historical data and you ask uh, how good it is. Uh, is it solid? Is it based upon eyewitness rather than hearsay uh, sources? Uh, is it the kind of thing uh, which, under other circumstances, regardless of the content of it, you would go along with? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's the case, then you, you buy it. Uh, the universe is too mysterious for us to rule out anything just because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And that's exactly what's going on with Elaine Pagels. She's relying on third century material, which has absolutely no connection, no provable connection with Jesus whatsoever. And she is preferring that picture of Jesus to the picture of Jesus based upon what the eyewitnesses say. Now, the eyewitnesses say things that can make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, according to them, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the apostles preached there is none other name under heaven by which we must be saved. All right, we may not like that. We would, maybe we'd prefer a more relaxed approach uh, religiously. But if, <laughs> if Jesus has, in fact, risen from the dead, and the evidence is overwhelming in these documents, uh, and he then... Uh, verifies his claim to deity and tells us that that's the way it is, well, we might may not like it, but we had jolly well better accept it, because that's God himself who's telling us what he's like and what he expects of us. So, uh, in, a, in a sense, you're arguing that Elaine Pagels uh, may be trying to uh, sneak in herself as a deity, deciding what the deity what God is supposed to be like. Well, uh, yes, maybe. What I'm, what I'm saying is that uh, the claims to her scholarship are grossly exaggerated. This is dreadful scholarship. Uh, if we tried to uh, argue that, uh, what, Columbus uh, had not really discovered America uh, in spite of uh, the testimonies that we have concerning this, owing to the fact that two centuries later somebody said that it wasn't Christopher Columbus but his brother Alfonso who did it, <laughs> nobody would pay any attention to this at all. Uh, but in the case of, of, of Jesus, uh, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, speaking through the Elder Devil Screwtape, what we want to do is to create a new Jesus every fall, uh, to keep people away from the real Jesus. So we'll do a Marxist Jesus this year, and we'll do a capitalist Jesus next year, and so on down the line. And uh, the, uh, people are threatened by Jesus, uh, and Pagels is threatened by Jesus. And so, uh, in the pretense of scholarship, she presents this kind of alternative Jesus. But we've got to be mature enough to face the Jesus who really 
lived. Uh, because, uh, you know, someday we're going to have to face him. Uh, the apostles say every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The issue is not whether we're going to do this, it's when we're going to do it. Right. And, uh, and I, my suggestion to the radio audience is do it now while it can benefit you. <laughs> okay, well, this comes back to another question that I really wanted to delve into is, you know, we live in a post-Jesus seminar world, and apparently a bunch of scholars got together and voted with beads regarding what what is true and what is false in the, in the current Gospels as we have them. And um, I think we're only left with some of the moralizing stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, you're talking about the Jesus seminar. Yeah, yes. John Dominic Crossan and his, uh, and his yes, yes, crew. Yes, the funk, funk and the boys. Yeah, well, you see, the problem there is that they are assuming that the, that the New Testament documents uh, went through extensive editorial changes and that uh, what we have in the Gospels uh, is simply a resultant product of pasting together uh, various streams of material uh, that reflected different approaches to Jesus in different Christian communities. Now, that's the assumption. The problem with this is that because the evidence is so strong that the stuff as we have it was written by eyewitnesses or close associates of eyewitnesses, uh, and that it was that early, there isn't the time for that kind of editorial change and redaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, secondly, uh, these Jesus Seminar people can't agree with each other. The reason that they vote with the, with the colored balls uh, uh, is that, uh, <laughs> that they, they, they don't agree as to where one of these alleged uh, fragments that went into the final production ends and another one begins. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 1920s, uh, people of similar stripe uh, projected a, a polychrome Bible where uh, the different strands were supposed to be presented in colors. This thing was never published because they couldn't agree uh, on what color to use at what point. Uh, so this is entirely a matter of, of subjectivity. It's, it isn't scholarship. Uh, it, it's a matter of, of recreating this stuff rather than taking it as it stands. Okay, so let me let me get to your assumption then. What is scholarship? What is good scholarship and what is bad scholarship? I mean, is it is you know, I've heard somebody uh, a few years ago was a, a judge was trying to decide what pornography is. He says, "I couldn't give you a definition, but I know it when I see it." Is there a <laughs> yes. it, Well, well, yes, yes. One tends to know it when one sees it, but only if one has the criteria uh, for proper examination of the stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, first, the first principle in good scholarship is uh, the subject-object distinction, that is, distinguishing yourself and your ideas from what you're studying. Uh, you, you've got to arrive at a point of maturity where you're willing to examine objectively uh, the subject uh, or the, the object, let's say, of your investigation. Uh, if, if you blend the two together, if you allow your ideas and your likes and dislikes to influence what you are studying, uh, to the extent that you do this, you're not going to be doing scholarship. You're going to be doing autobiography. And that's exactly what the liberal scholars are doing in the case of the New Testament. They're doing autobiography. They end up with the kind of Jesus that they feel comfortable with. And uh, the, the, the proper approach to scholarship, whether you're dealing with a biography of Adolf Hitler or of Jesus Christ, is first of all to understand who he thought he was and who other people thought he was, 
and whether there's enough evidence that he was the kind of person that is being described. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then, after you've done all that, you can always uh, evaluate it personally. You can always say, well, uh, that's how he was. I don't like him. Uh, you can always say that, but if you allow your likes and dislikes to influence the very portrait that you draw, mm -hmm. then that isn't scholarship. Okay, so the the these liberal scholars then they're trying to recreate, rethink, repaint Jesus in a way that uh, that they can manage and deal with, and uh, and in a way come up uh, with a way of just getting out around the uh, New Testament document uh, pictures of Jesus. Oh, I think there's no doubt about this, and there's also this anti-miraculous bias. Right. Uh, these, these, these scholars are not living in the age of relativity. They're living in the 18th century age of Newton, uh, with a Newtonian view of the universe in which uh, the, uh, it's a level playing field and everybody knows the rules and miracles don't occur, uh, etc., uh, and if you start out with a philosophical orientation like that, then you're never going to be able to uh, read these documents correctly, and you're never going to be able to appreciate what they're actually saying. Okay, so they're they're bringing a priori assumptions to the table in their scholarship, and then the results of their scholarship uh, are just confirming their a priori assumptions. Sure, there's a wonderful analogy for this. Uh, in the 18th century, or early 19th, uh, an Italian astronomer by the name of Schiaparelli uh, talked about the canali on Mars. The Italian word uh, canalo uh, means uh, a gully or a ditch, and of course this was immediately translated as canals, and everybody started looking at uh, Mars through telescopes uh, to see the Martians building these canals. And, of course, <laughs> nobody saw anything, right. and uh, only Schiaparelli. And it has been suggested that Schiaparelli had incipient cataract and what he was doing was actually reading off the vein structure of his own eye wow. when he was looking at Mars. Now, <laughs> that is exactly what uh, the uh, what the Pagels uh, crew are doing. They are reading off their own picture of the universe uh, as they look at Jesus. It is not scholarship. You do this, you don't discover anything about Mars. All you do, maybe, is discover something about Schiaparelli. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in other words, uh, as we read uh, Elaine Pagel's book, Beyond Belief, it tells us a lot about Elaine Pagel's, but not a lot about Jesus. Exactly. It certainly does. And it's, it's really very sad, because uh, her son uh, had a very rare lung disease, and as a result of this, uh, she... Uh, trotted back uh, to a church, apparently quite a liberal church, uh, and uh, she desperately wanted to find something that would help her, uh, but she wasn't satisfied with historic Christianity, uh, and uh, so she gets into this Gnostic gospel nonsense. Wow. All right. Well, our hope and prayers would be that, uh, that God would open the eyes of people like Elaine Pagels and Crossan and Funk and the gang. So. Well, indeed, he wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, uh, but he's not going to force anybody. You know, uh, New Testament says, uh, uh, the risen Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in to him and sup with him and he with me. Uh, there's that wonderful uh, painting uh, in, uh, in London uh, showing Jesus standing at a door, but there's no... Uh, handle on the outside. Yeah. The door's got to be open from the inside. <laughs>
Okay. Um, Dr. Montgomery, uh, f- for further reading and resources, um, I remember when I was doing my undergraduate degree, uh, I had read a book of yours called History and Christianity. Is that still available? Well, yes, it's in a revised edition now called History, Law, and Christianity because uh, since that time uh, I became a lawyer and an English barrister and uh, I've included uh, legal evidence in behalf of the Gospels. For example, an evaluation of the testimonies uh, to Jesus uh, as uh, they would be evaluated in a court of law. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, that's available, and uh, a lot of other stuff of mine as well. Okay, so what I'll do here is that, uh, you, there's a website uh, that we point people to. That, uh, there's a show that uh, broadcasts some of your previous lectures here on Pirate Christian Radio called The Academy. And uh, what we do with that is uh, we point people to the uh, website for the Canadian Institute of Law, and I can't remember the entire thing, but uh, it, that, so uh, your book history... Law and Christianity is available at that website. Yes, and that's uh, www.cilttpp.com. C-I-L-T-P-P. That stands for the Canadian Institute for Law, Theology, and Public Policy. And uh, also, uh, listeners might be interested in coming to France for two weeks, uh, because uh, every summer during the month of July, we hold... Uh, the only Institute of Advanced Studies in Apologetics anywhere, and it's absolutely marvelous. Uh, this summer, uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, Dr. Michael Horton, uh, Craig Parton, and myself will be teaching for two weeks, uh, and uh, this is in the French Rhineland. Uh, the website for that is www.apologeticsacademy, all is one word, dot .eu. Excellent. And uh, I could tell you there's not a greater authority on the planet alive right now in Christian apologetics than Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. And so uh, space fills up pretty quick. You have a limited number of spaces there. I understand you only have uh, room for 20 people, and already five of those are taken. for. Uh, and it's in Jul- July 7th through the 18th in 2009 in the French Rhinelands. Yes, and there are scholarships that are available, $1,000 scholarships to reduce the price of the program, which is... Uh, just short of three thousand dollars and uh, those scholarships are not difficult to obtain so uh, and they're they're uh, made available on a first-come first-served basis so listeners uh, should certainly uh, take a look at that website uh, and uh, if, if interested get in touch with us and register as soon as possible well excellent Dr. John Warwick Montgomery, thank you for coming on to uh, our program, Fighting for the Faith, here on Pirate Christian Radio, and uh, look forward to having you on again in the future. This has been a very helpful interview in helping our audience kind of get some of the basics regarding whether or not we can trust the New Testament documents, and uh, look forward to pointing them to your books and to uh, your uh, seminars and lectures so that they can uh, learn how to defend their faith in the, in the light of the attacks from both outside and within Christian, Christians' walls nowadays. Right on. All right. Thank you, Dr. John Mork Montgomery. Yes, you're welcome. All right. All right. That was my interview with uh, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery. And uh, I, I, what's funny is is that I reminded him that I took a course from him a couple years ago. He was in Southern California, and he was uh, teaching an apologetics course. It was a six-week-long, uh, like a symposia on apologetics, and <clears throat> there was maybe a 20 of us in the class, and we each had to do a paper. And uh, <clears throat> a, a friend of mine had, uh, actually the church had in, basically invited me to attend and paid for my tuition to attend the apologetics course. And at the time, I was very, very busy. I was uh, finishing my MBA and uh, also had launched um, one of my companies and so was uh, spending a lot of time doing it. 
uh, work. And <coughs> Montgomery wanted us all to do a, a, a final examination at the end of the six-week apologetic course. And it was an oral examination. And I'm thinking, you know, somebody gave me, you know, this, this was a gift. You know, the class was a gift. And, you know, I'm really busy with other things. I don't need to do a an oral examination. <laughs> Oh man! So I told Doctor Montgomery, I said, "You know, thanks, but no thanks." And he he read me the riot act. <laughs> oh man! Oh, so anyway, <clears throat> I ended up taking the oral examination, and I, of course, I I passed it in flying colors because you know I'm I read the ESV standard version of the Bible, so I'm very pietistic. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to squeam, to squirm out of the story that I've already begun to tell. All right, thank you for listening to today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and if you would like to email me and sound off, if you had any questions about the interview I had with Dr. Montgomery, feel free to write to talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll put a link up to his uh, Canadian Institute so that you can uh, you can. Uh, get a hold of his books really strongly recommend uh history law and christianity good book on basic apologetics of the christian faith until next time god bless you